Welcome to the Hyper Guy Motivational Podcast. I'm so lucky today to have Dr. Obed Magni. He is a leader, an absolute leader in our community. He's doing amazing things internationally and nationally. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And so I get to do your I get to do your introductions right now. So you have your BA in criminal justice sociology. He's a former police officer with over two decades of law enforcement experience. He's CEO and founder of Magni Leadership. He's on a national advisory board of Act Now, a group of dedicated professionals driving change in the community. You're a national policing expert, and you teach leadership uh, classes around the country. You are also an author and executive coach. Is there anything you don't do? Uh, I, I don't swim. I don't hike. <laughs> I don't camp. But uh, yeah, yeah, those are just a few things that I don't do. So. Well, well, thank you so much for being here because I know you're doing a lot of amazing things. I've heard a lot of great things about you and stuff that you're doing in the community. And I, I just want to start by saying that we always start the same way as where were you born and raised? I was born in Miami, Florida, and I was raised in Boston, Massachusetts, where I spent most of my adult life. And what was your what was your life like growing up? So for those who don't know, obviously, I'm a tropical brother. I love warm weather. And if it's warm, if it's 95 degrees and above, I feel like I'm at peace. Uh, why my parents chose to go to Boston, I, I'm still trying to figure that out. They apparently love the cold weather, but that DNA never imparted on me. So I'm the uh, the antichrist when it comes to cold weather. But uh, growing up, you know, uh, both of my parents are from Haiti. And, uh, you know, they moved here to the United States because they wanted a, you know, better living for not just for themselves, uh, but for my brother and my sister. So, uh, you know, between the two of them, they worked like five jobs. Uh, you know, they did the best they could to help us, you know, be in a position where we can succeed later on in life. And, you know, by the grace of God, between my brother, and my sister and I, we're all very successful and we're all doing well. And, uh, you know, we do the best that we can to repay our parents back and represent them well. Uh, in all of our endeavors and so on and so forth. Uh, growing up in Boston, I mean, I mean, Boston's great. Don't get me wrong. It's cool. But maybe for four months out of the year, because, you know, again, when it's cold, I'm miserable. And I, that's just not my environment. But, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough, you know, again, uh, not just uh, uh, as somebody put in there, go Lakers. Uh, I don't know who that is, but me and him are going to fight. But, uh, yeah, no, you know, I uh, went to school here in Boston. I uh, got my undergrad here. A uh, lot of friends, a lot of family here. Boston's like my second home, or I guess you said my first home, even though I don't live there anymore. But, uh, yeah, no, just, you know, I've been very, very fortunate to be around some really, really good people. Um, so, so, let, so let me go back in time a little bit. What, yeah. was, what was, you said your parents immigrated here and what was that process for them like? Did they get work here? And how did they find work here? And did they go to school here? How did that process work? Yeah, so I think my father came here first. I don't know, there's some controversy about who got here first or whatever it is. I, I don't get involved in that. But uh, so they got here and my mother worked in a bank. At the time it was called Shamit Bank. It's not around anymore. It's called something else. But uh, I know she did some data entry work. My father, he worked in billing for Honeywell. And the both of them, obviously, uh, you know, they retired from their jobs. So they're relaxing, even though they're not really relaxing. They're still doing a lot of work. You know, my mother's very, very involved in the church. 
Uh, she does a lot of teaching with uh, leadership and stuff like that. So I don't know if that counts as retirement, but, you know, she enjoys what she's doing. Uh, you know, my father, same thing. Uh, that guy can't stay still. So it's like every day he's out and about doing something, going somewhere. Uh, but, you know, just, you know, growing up, I mean, they they knew they had a plan to come here to be more successful because, you know, uh, in Haiti, there was a lot of turmoil and stuff like that. And there were just more opportunities here in the United States. So they chose to come here. Now, they do go back fairly frequently. Uh, they have not been back recently because there's been a lot of um, unrest down there. So that's, you know. So what was, did you, do you have any brothers and sisters? Mm -hmm. One brother, one sister. And then what was your relationship like with them growing up? And what was the atmosphere in the house? Did you look at your parents as role models? Were they strict? Were they not strict? Oh, oh, oh they were strict. They were super strict. I, I can't even begin to get into the details of how strict. I'm talking like, I mean, yeah, it was, yeah, it was, it, it was a strict upbringing, um, you know, Christian household, uh, you know, there was no such thing as failure. You know, I mean, we're all going to be successful. We're all going to go to school and get our degrees and so on and so forth. That was something that my parents always imparted in us. Uh, you know, growing up with my brother and sister, you know, just a typical brother and sister, the rivalries, always fighting and tussling and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but, you know, we all get along well. We all get along great. Um, you know, just... I wouldn't say there was anything out of the ordinary. My brother was more of a uh, GQ cosmopolitan type of guy. Me, I was more of a t-shirt and jeans kind of guy. And obviously, you know, this t-shirt. So, you know. so, so let me ask you. So you said your parents were disciplined. Did that discipline help you later? It did. Uh, it did in many, many respects, actually. So one of the things that we learned from my parents was you just can't be satisfied just to be satisfied. So mediocrity is considered a failure. If you're just average, you're considered a failure. It is the, you will always go above and beyond. You will always do better than the person next to you. Uh, not in a nefarious standpoint, but you know, coming from where they're coming from, you know, Haiti being you know one of the poorest countries in the world, you know, they know what that's like and they didn't want any of that for us and so, you know, being disciplined, staying focused, having a plan, sticking with that plan. And sometimes, you know, those plans change, but never, ever deviate from the big picture. Make sure that you're always moving forward. And so, you know, again, you know, my, like I said, between the two of them, they worked like five jobs. And then even, you know, even my mother had a side hustle on top of all of those things. You know, she would drive down, you know, we would go down to New York like every other weekend or like once a month. And, uh, you know, she would buy some clothes there, bring it up to Boston and then, you know, sell you know those clothes to make her profit on the side. So there was always a hustle component. And that's just that's just in our DNA, you know. So that's uh, a, a lot of that stuff. I guess, you know, you, you just can't shake it. Right. Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So. So. So were they in what way? What way were they disciplined? So like you said, they were disciplined and where is there? Was there a certain structure they gave you to your day? How did that work? Oh, yeah. So all of our friends, if we had any, were super screened. She had to meet all of my friends' parents before we could even hang out. Like, we could start there. Uh, we had to be in bed at, like, 7 or 8. Uh, no more than, like, two hours, one hour of TV during the week. We always had to have our homework done. Um 
you know, sleepovers. I know these things sound trivial, right? But it was just, it, it was this, I guess, unconsciously we were picking up on the fact that we all know that you're only as successful as the five people that you hang out with on a regular basis, right? And they wanted to make sure that we weren't hanging out with bums. I'm using air quotes when I say that, right? Um, that these people are also on the path to success and also wanting to, you know, be successful and so on and so forth. So whether it was with school, whether it was with our coursework or classwork, um, being, you know, getting to school on time and all those kinds of things, uh, those are the things that we were, you know, we were learning when we were little. We didn't know what we were learning, but we just knew, hey, oh, you're being strict because, oh, you. You're being stripped because you want us to be successful. You want us to be disciplined. You don't want us hanging out with the wrong crowd. And, you know, sometimes what you see on the surface is not what's going on underneath. So let's meet their parents and make sure their parents are on the right, you know, path and so on and so forth. So, you know, just things like that. You know, I was in the Boy Scouts, um, you know, different clubs growing up. But just they were just exposing us to different things. And, uh, so we and had this, this whole concept that you're talking about, like, hanging out with, hey, you want to make sure you hang out with at least, you said, five people that were successful. Did your parents impart that upon you? Or did you learn this as you were growing up that this is what my mom meant when she said that? It was it was both. So, you know, when you're little, you don't, I mean, we've all seen the Karate Kid, right? The movie The Karate Kid. So Daniel's doing the wax on, wax off. And what's he saying? He's like, man, why am I doing this? This is a waste of time. We're just freaking pain. Why we just do it? And, you know, you don't know what you don't know when you're younger, right? So when you're being taught life lessons, sometimes you'll get it right away. Sometimes it might take you a little bit of um, going through the progressions and then learning, oh, this is what you were trying to teach us. This is what you were trying to impart on us. So I didn't recognize it right away. I was just thinking she was being way too strict. I'm like, man, my friends, they, they can go over to their friend's house and play video games and they can see, well, why can't we can't do it? And, you know, smack me side my head. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, I guess I won't be challenging you on that again. So... Oh, so yeah. And, and who who were your role models growing up? Did you have any heroes or anybody that you kind of like when you were younger, elementary school before you went to high school? What kind of role models did you have? Uh, you know, my parents were always going to be my role models. You know, uh, but I don't. You know, I don't know that there was any one person. Uh, I mean, it would be easy to say you know athletes growing up, but I was never really. Much, I wasn't much of a. Uh, this athlete is my role model or anything like that. I was always attracted to people who were super successful in their own right. Um, not to say that being an athlete is a bad thing or anything like that, but, you know, I was always drawn to people who were like business owners and Fortune 500 CEOs, Fortune 500 company CEOs and stuff like that. And, you know, people who, again, ran their own company and had that freedom, right? Uh, and people who are making an impact in the world. So, uh, you know, your Martin Luther Kings, Malcolm X's, you know, people from the past. Uh, I always looked up to those type of people who had courage. And I've always just, like I said, people who have courage for me, you know, that's worth more than a million dollars or two million dollars or anything like that. And I was always drawn in, you know, I was always drawn to those types of people, um, not necessarily the flashiness or anything like that, you know, or anything. So, you know, I didn't really have any one specific person or anything like that, but. So what was your high school years like? And did you know in high school what you wanted to do? Absolutely not. In high school, let me just, <laughs> high school, whoosh. All right, so in high school, I uh, I, I had a 2.0 GPA. We, we, we can start that right there. 
Uh, how I went from the 2.0 GPA in high school to where I'm at today, I'm sure we'll get into that too. But, uh, you know, high school, you know, I, I had no clue. I thought I wanted to do NASCAR, drive monster trucks. Um, I mean, I was about as clueless as they come. I was just like, you know what? I don't know. I guess I'll figure it out when I'm like 30 or something like that. And, um, yeah, no, I just, you know, I was playing football. So I guess you could say I was, uh, you know, like every other kid, oh, I want to go to the NFL or I want to play baseball or basketball. And no one, you know, I, I wasn't going to go pro in anything. But, um, yeah, no, I mean, I enjoyed high school, you know, played a lot of video games. I was a big Sega Genesis, Sega fan. You know, we all remember the days of Nintendo versus Sega. So, um, you know, play, but you, sports was my thing in high school. I mean, I, I was big in the track and field in football. So as far as like discipline and some of those life lessons we were just talking about earlier, you know, it's just something that I was always surrounded by, you know, structure, discipline, um, lessons in life that you can learn on the field or on the track, you know, stuff like that. So uh, just a typical high school, I guess you can say fun. So, so what, so what did you want to do after high school? What was your plan when you got out of high school? What, what was that transgression for you? So I uh, get out of high school, I get into college and, um, wait for it. I still have no clue. <laughs> So I'm undecided. And uh, yeah, so I'm undecided, you know, just playing football. And I can't write the, I can't pass the writing proficiency exam. And so I'm like, yeah, I guess I need to get on top of this. And I need to pass this if I'm going to graduate from uh, college. And yes, I was on a six year plan, uh, you know, when I was, you know, getting my undergrad. But, uh, you know, in my first couple of years, I thought I wanted to do something in business. Initially, I thought I did, but I was like, no, I don't think I want to do that. And, you know, my mother, you know, kept telling me, hey, you should be a doctor, a lawyer or an engineer. And that's something that you commonly hear, especially with Caribbean parents uh, that they want for their kids. And engineering, I think I tried that for like one semester. And I was like, oh, no, 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 this is definitely not for me. Absolutely not. No, thank you. Uh, we'll leave that for somebody else. Uh, the lawyer part. Uh, I, I like to argue. I like to have conversations. I like to have cruise conversations, but that just, you know, it didn't really do anything for me. And then by sheer coincidence, the doctor thing ended up working out, but that was later on in life. And that was almost by accident. And we'll get to that in a second. But during my years in uh, at UMass Boston, shout out to the Beacons, to all my Beacon people out there. Uh, you know, college, I was just searching myself, searching myself, and it wasn't until maybe my junior year, I started to figure out, hey, you know, I kind of like this space of working in law enforcement or making an impact in the law enforcement field. Maybe I want to be a police officer. So that's where that interest started to kind of come in. And then, uh, you know, from there, uh, that's kind of, I was just chasing that, that dream. So then you graduated from college and did you go, what was your, what happened next? So graduate from college, uh, I'm doing the in-between jobs thing. So I, uh, you know, work in security here, work in security there. I was a bouncer, uh, you know, in some of the establishments in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, but I want to say about eight years, seven years after I graduated, um, an opportunity presented itself. Uh, you know, to be a police officer in the state of California. Now, I did try with the Boston police and I did try with the Massachusetts State Police. 
Y'all was like, nah, we're good. We don't need you. So I was like, okay, I guess I'm just going to go to the West Coast and, uh, you know, get me some of that sunshine. And so, uh, yeah, I moved out to Sacramento. Uh, spent, you know, 17 years uh, working as a police officer out there. Uh, great career. Had a lot of fun. So that, I kind of want to get into that a little bit. What was what was that transition? You said you wanted to be a police officer because you wanted to help you want to help people. Yeah. When you went to the police department, going to the academy, did it meet your expectations? Or how did you feel when you were in the police department? Did you feel like it was the right fit for you? The culture, so forth, was it good for you? Well, first things first, it was a culture shock. So nobody in my family's in law enforcement. Nobody in my family's ever worked. Um in law or anything like that. So none of my friends were police officers. I didn't know anybody who'd ever been in the profession. So for me, I didn't know what I didn't know. I had no frame of reference. I had no idea what to expect other than, you know, obviously what a recruiter would tell you. And you know, the recruiter I had was a great guy, you know, um, fantastic person. He just kind of just said, hey, you expect this, expect this, yada, yada, yada. And um, so, I get into the academy, and mind you, nobody in my family also has ever been in the military, so I couldn't even use that as a frame of reference. So, you know, going into the academy where, you know, I still remember the first day we were getting yelled at because we couldn't get a door open to go into the classroom and everything, and it was just, it was eye-opening. <clears throat> but um, it took me a while to get adjusted to it uh, because it was so rigid. But, you know, again, coming up from a very strict household where, you know, my parents were very disciplined and they were imparting that discipline on us. Uh, there was a lot of that stuff that was that, I guess you could say I was relearning what I already knew in many respects. So, you know, the six months of the Academy, I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't say it was a lot of fun, but uh, you know, the discipline, the staying focused and making sure that you keep your eyes on the prize and understanding that it is a privilege to be in policing, you know, to be in the law enforcement profession, to be able to make a difference in somebody's life. Um, you know, this isn't a job like others, right? So, you know, everything you do is going to be under a microscope. Everything will be under a microscope. You will be second guessed on things that you do, even if you do everything right, um, even if it's within policy. Um, you know, all these things are, you know, this is just, like I said, you're, you're, I'm going to use a phrase that one of the instructors uh, used uh, during one of the courses. <clears throat> he said that we're one level below celebrity status. Because if you see a patrol car driving down the street, everybody's looking at that patrol car. Everyone's paying attention to you. Now, if you're driving, I don't know, a Target or a FedEx truck down the street, nobody's, and no, no disrespect to FedEx or anything like that, but nobody's really paying attention to you like that. And so, you know, again, uh, being in policing is very rewarding, but, you know, at the same time, it's very challenging. And <clears throat> just being able to make sure you keep your wits about you, um, even during stressful situations, so that you don't get out of control and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, all that stuff was important. But just, again, learning about law, law enforcement, um, some of the social dynamics related to law enforcement, you know, when you're doing your job, when you're out in the field. Uh, you know, all those kinds of, all those what, kinds of things. So, what what was the most difficult part of being a police officer for you? Hmm, great question. The most diff, hmm, the most difficult part is probably not what you're thinking. Um, working in the streets, 
you know, dealing with different dynamics and stuff like that. I'm not saying that was easy, but uh, I didn't have a difficult, I didn't have a difficult time with that. Um, the, the Probably the most difficult part for me is actually two things going on at the same time. It was the, when I was in a doctoral program, learning about emotional intelligence and learning about social skills and how to use those social skills when interacting with other people, that kind of training was non-existent. And so for me, as an example, I'll be on a call for service or a couple calls for service. And the way I interact with people, I'm very light. I like to crack jokes. I like to be present with the individual or individuals that I'm with. Now, I understand that that's a gift from God that I have when it comes to the gift of God, when it comes to relating to people, when it comes to, you know, having people drawn to you. I know that I've got that gift and I know that um, I'm very good at interacting with other people or meeting them at where they're at. That skill set, unfortunately, is not prevalent throughout the, you know, throughout the uh, policing culture. Uh, there was a research study that was uh, published last year that showed that it's something like 3.21% of all the curriculum just in the academy alone is spent on social skills or, you know, uh, courses, you know, where you can help the officer interact with people better. Now, we're in a profession where 99% of the time when we're dealing with people, they're having a bad day. So what was a struggle for me was how is it that I'm able to connect with people at a certain level, but then some of my counterparts, they're not as effective. Um, so that's kind of how I got into the whole, you know, got my master's and got my doctorate degree in so, leadership and how I got to this stage. So, so Obed, can you tell me, can you define emotional intelligence and why it's important, not only as a police officer, but generally speaking, if you want to be a leader or, or be successful in your organization? Absolutely. And, and before I get into that, this is why when that question is always asked of me, of the what's the most difficult thing you have to deal with or what's the one call that, you know, and it's just like, you know, when you're working on, I didn't know what the name of it was until I got into you know, the doctoral program. And I was like, oh, that's what it is. It's emotional intelligence. Don't worry, I'll define it in a second. But it was because of that and because of my being able to manage stress and so on and so forth. And because of the adversities that I dealt with growing up as a child, it just better prepared me for the profession to work in the, in the, in the profession. So emotional intelligence in the lamest terms is understanding your emotions as they happen to you and understanding the emotions of people as their emotions happen to them and mediating that. Meaning, for example, you know, uh, it doesn't matter what job you're in, by the way. You could be in tech, you could be in finance, and I'm and I know finance, especially with the economy, uh, you know, especially the past few years. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of stress there too. But it's understanding that if you know what your triggers are, if you know what upsets you, if you know what motivates you, and if you know who you are to the core you're going to be that much more of a better person when leading others or in a leadership position. Uh, in the movie, The Matrix, uh, there's a scene in there where Neo walks through, the, when he meets the Oracle, uh, where he walks through like her living room or whatever it is, and there's a sign that's written in Latin above his head. Obviously, I can't read Latin. Uh, I'm sure some people can. I'm not one of those guys. But the saying above his head that was on the uh, above that door uh, it says, know thyself. That's the interpretation. And you can't lead people unless you can lead yourself first. 
How many people do we know that have temper tantrums, that can't control their temper, that, you know, they just say whatever. They're not disciplined in what they say and the things that they do. That is emotional intelligence lacking, right? So if I'm, I don't know, let's say I want to be uh, the new motivational podcast host, uh, you know, I have to know, hey, can I do this job, number one? Do I have the fortitude? Do I have the personality? Do I even know what to do as far as when you have a podcast? Do I even know what the nuances are? So on and so forth. So it's the, do you have the stomach for it? Um, Dr. Cornel West uh, coined the phrase, you can't lead the people unless you love the people. So if you don't love yourself first, if you don't come to terms to loving yourself and all of your flaws first, you have no business leading other people. You're just faking the funk. And that's something that I've always lived by because I've always loved the people. I've always loved, um, you know, interact with people. Lord knows I did not grow up with a silver spoon in my mouth. Uh, so because of those things, um, when we talk about emotional intelligence and knowing your emotions and knowing your personality, knowing who you are first, once you have that understanding, then you can understand other people in their predicaments and where they're coming from. So, so what would you suggest to people if they want to develop emotional intelligence? Because if part of that, hey, you know what? I know I'm I'm listening to this podcast. I know I have to dig 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 deeper into this subject. I want to improve on it. What did you do to improve on it? And what kind of what kind of advice would you give to somebody to develop that? In no matter what field they're they're in. Well, first things first. You can go to my website, magnumleadership.com. I have a course. That is uh, just dropped on emotional intelligence. It's emotional intelligence 101, how to utilize emotional intelligence. So you could do that. That's your first option. Um, I would strongly recommend that you uh, you guys do go and uh, purchase the course that I am offering. And it's one of many. And I'm going to get into that in a second, too. So the first things first is there's four. There's like four or five components of emotional intelligence. There's the self-awareness, which I was just talking about, right? So knowing who you are first. Second part of that is the self-regulation or self-management, which is, okay, I know that I'm triggered. I know that I'm upset. What am I doing to regulate that? The third part is social awareness. And this is the what's not being said or looking past what you're seeing in front of you, right? And then the last part, you know, is, um, uh, I was going to say, uh, relationship management. I'm over here struggling to get the words out of my mouth. Um, and so relationship management is how do we maintain the relationships that we that we have with each other, right? So some of that is empathy, there's motivation that's involved, all of these things. So the first things, the, one of the first things you can do is, uh, there's a book by Daniel Goldman. He was the uh, person who coined the phrase uh, emotional intelligence, read the book. Um, hire a coach. Uh, family, I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, I'm also an executive coach. So if you're looking to improve your emotional intelligence, Hire somebody who's going to help you. And it doesn't matter what profession you're in. I've helped people become police chiefs. I've heard people, I've helped people in uh, project management. Um, you name it in just about every profession. Uh, we all are different individuals. No two people are the same. So, you know, you, sir, Mr. Martin Figueroa, you know, you may have some certain triggers that I'm just like, yeah, that does nothing for me, but it does something for you and vice versa. Maybe you're running an organization and you have your people don't trust you. They've uh, done the vote of no confidence against you. And you're like, how do I fix this? How do I get people to there's all of these things are part of the emotional intelligence uh, sphere. Because think of it as like a big umbrella, but it's a lot of things underneath. So it's grit, resiliency, social skills, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So if you want to work on it, 
obviously could get my class, you know, magnetleadership.com, hire a coach. You can also get the book by Daniel Goleman. But, you know, you can go online. You can go. There's some simple things you can do. And one of the things that I do on my social media is I'm always giving out tips to improve your emotional intelligence. Uh, so on Instagram lives, you know, I've been on LinkedIn. Uh, so there's going to be more and more of this coming uh, coming soon. And so I'll share my contact information whenever we get to that. So point. let me ask you this. When you were at the police department, was there ever any point in your career where you were struggling dealing with your own leaders and how did you navigate that knowing that maybe you know this this leader is very difficult to deal with how did how did what kind of tools and suggestions would you have for people out there that are dealing with those kind of situa situations hey i want to promote um but i have this very very difficult leader um and i'm struggling with my own stuff what kind of suggestions do you have for, for those individuals that's not just a great question but I don't think we ask that question enough. So if you, I don't know if you're familiar with the DISC uh, assessment. So, you know, everybody fits a personality type, right? The D's are the dominance, the I's, you know, the influential goofy types, you know, then you have your C's who like, they question everything. And then there's those who are steady. They just, whatever happens, happens. I'm either too high or either too low. <clears throat> when you understand the individual that you're dealing with, the individual that you're working with, the individual that you're interacting with. When you speak to them in their language, they're going to listen to you. For example, uh, you just brought it up. If I want to promote, right? Or if I know that this, if, if I know the leadership style of this person that I'm trying to communicate with because I want to get somewhere, if that person's personality type is a D and this person is straight to the point, no personality, blah, 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 blah. I can't come to that individual and be like, hey, tell me about the family, tell me about the friends, you know, what's going on, how was your weekend? They don't have time for that. So you're already going to lose them if you try to communicate to them in your language. Now, if you know that person, again, like I just said, is a D, and I did this too, I did this with a couple of co-workers, it's like magic, y'all, it's like, you know, it's I, I can't explain it, it's just when you reach them at their level, it's like, oh, you understand me, you get me, so now we can move forward. Um, if that person's a D, this is somebody who's a no-nonsense business, whatever, come to that individual and speak to them in that language. So you're trying to promote, you're dealing with difficult supervisors or whatever it is. If you know that they're a personality type, reach them at that personality type. Again, that goes back to you know the whole conglomerate of emotional intelligence, social intelligence, all those things. When you know the individual, when you know you, you know who you are, you know how you communicate and so on and so forth. Now you understand, hey, this personality type may not be conducive working with this person over here. So if I understand this person over here fits a certain mold, I'm going to speak to that person in that specific mold. So my advice to anybody who's dealing with a difficult supervisor, uh, and we've all had them, trust me, I've had them in every, I had them before I got into policing. And I, I never figured out, it's like, man, I tried to explain it to them and they just didn't get me and they, and it wasn't until it clicked where I was like, wait a minute, if this person is a jokester and this person likes to play games or is very light, influential, so on and so forth, I have to talk to that person in a manner that they feel comfortable. And when they feel comfortable, then you can come in and you can work with them and do all, you know, do what you need to do. And I'm telling you, this is not just me saying this. I've done this many, many times. I just go to the person, 
hey, this is what it is, boom, 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 in their language. And next thing you know, things get done left and right. And what was the most difficult challenge that you had in your law enforcement career? I will the most say, the most difficult situation. Let me put it that way. And then, how did you get through it? If you, I mean, you can kind of give a general idea. You don't have to be super specific. Um, one of the things, uh, unfortunately, in policing is that we don't put a premium on education. And so, me getting my doctorate degree, uh, you know, here I'm thinking, oh, I'm gonna get my doctorate degree. I'm gonna save the world. I'm gonna come up with other solutions. So, and I didn't get the support that I thought I was going to get. Um, you know, there were some people saying, well, who do you think you are doing? I'm, I'm sitting here like, okay, first and foremost, who tells somebody to not continue to get their education, right? Who tells someone to, you need to stop improving yourself because you're making me feel a little small, right? If there's one thing that my parents taught us, the three of us, me and my brother and my sister growing up is do not under any circumstances ever, ever dim your life to make somebody else feel comfortable because you have a purpose in life. God put you on earth for a reason. You are to walk in your purpose. You are to do your purpose in life. And if there's a hater on the side or somebody who wants to second guess, let them do what they're going to do. Okay. The most important thing is you doing what you need to do. So if there was any um, challenge, I guess you could say, in my law enforcement career. And I wouldn't even just say it was limited to just me being a police officer. It's in the, as we know that research is showing that, you know, various things work in social skills or, you know, evidence-based policing. This is why I'm such a big proponent of evidence-based policing. It's because we know that there's a better way of doing a lot of things uh, where we can be more efficient, more effective, where we can increase trust and legitimacy but it's not being embraced by the masses as of yet. It's being embraced by many and the momentum is moving forward, which is great. But it's that initial, um, I guess you could say, no, nah, we're not interested in that. Knowing it will do more harm than good for your organization and just dealing with those nuances. Uh, so that's, that, I mean, I guess you could say that's, that's been a challenge. Um, I don't know that there's a ranking order of, oh, it's definitely this number one and then this number two. Um, but evidence-based policing, one of the reasons why I'm such a big proponent of it, uh, or in any profession, again, it's not just limited to policing. Um, you know, that, that part's always the most challenging. You know, I, I, I mean, you know, it's like I, if your doctor tells you, hey, you need to stop eating Burger King, you need to work out and uh, eat more broccoli and vegetables. Yeah, you're going to say, man, I don't want to do that. But, you know, you have to because if you don't, there are going to be some dire consequences by not following those directions. So, hey, where, where do you think that the resistance comes from to people getting education or maintaining the status quo? Because I think everybody in, in organizations gets very, very used to maintaining the status quo. And when somebody comes along and, and wants to change things, that maybe through, like you said, new ideas or innovation, or hey, I'm going to go, I'm getting an education, and people kind of see that as a threat. Why do you think it's a threat? And what can we do to kind of change or create that sea change? So it's always going to be a threat because it's new. And what we don't understand, we see as a threat, as, you know, hey, you know what, I don't know what. 
you know, I don't want to deal with that because uh, I don't know what that's all about. I'm not interested in learning about what this is all about. I know that I'm comfortable here in my little cocoon. So therefore, why would I disrupt what I got going on here to, you know, introduce something that I'm not familiar with? So that's a normal human reaction when it comes to change. Any type of change, there's always going to be some level of resistance or angst. And this is why I'm going to bring this back full circle again to the emotional intelligence piece. One of the factors is communication. If you don't have that communication from the get-go, hey, here's something that's coming down the pike. This is something that we're going to be doing that's new. Uh, before it gets here, we'd like to get some feedback. How do we make it easier? How do we implement it more? When you have people involved in that process, then that change becomes that much easier to implement. So that's number one. Number two, to your point of what can we do moving forward, I don't know if you work out. I work out on a regular basis. When you go to the gym, if you have the perfect physique, let's just say you got the perfect physique, do you say to yourself, oh, I don't have to work out anymore. I'm good. So <laughs> I could just sit around. No, there's even more of an emphasis to you to maintain that shape because you're going to lose it. So to answer that question, I said communication from the jump, and I'm going to say communication on the back. When you practice the, I guess you could say the introduction of change, because change is, an, is, is, a, is a constant thing. It's, it's always going to happen, no matter what. You can just look at what happened in technology over the past 15, 20 years, how it's exploded, how it's changed. Um, everything is moving online now. I mean, it's, this world is changing so fast, so quickly. And if you don't adapt, you're going to get left behind. So that's the understanding on the front end. If you're a leader in an organization, doesn't matter if it's in the private sector, the public sector, what have you. If you're not paying attention to the trends, and if you're not including those who are affected by these trends in the decision-making process, you're always going to have this issue, period, point blank. Because if the people don't trust you, if the people don't trust the leadership, you're done. The number one reason why people leave organizations is not because of the job per se, it's because of the leaders or the leadership of an organization. It's, can, it's, that's it. Can you talk about that, Obed? Because I think yeah. people don't really understand what you just said, that the turnover and retention in many police departments, many organizations is not high. Uh, and there's some areas that are really suffering. And part of that is just what you just said. And I don't know if you can expand on that a little bit. Absolutely. So you're seeing it right now with the great resignation, right? So you had this, obviously, the perfect storm with the pandemic and, you know, and so on. People are saying, you know what? So I worked my nine to five. I had to deal with racism, misogyny. I had to be undervalued by my supervisors and so on and so forth. You kind of get numb to it, right? And then when you have this pandemic where people had to be home and work remotely, there was kind of a reset that took place. So it was like, wait a minute. You know what? This mental sanity thing, oh, now I get it. You know what? My happiness does mean more to me than anything else. So you know what? After you know being on the other side of the pandemic, the opportunities were there to go back to work. And people were like, yeah, no, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'll do my own thing over here. I'll start my own business and so on and so forth. And so now you look at the employers who are looking around like, wait a minute. What do you mean you're saying? No, you ain't coming back. You What? Okay, we'll give you more money or we'll give you better benefits. And people are like, no. No. And this is something that I've been saying since 2010, before it was even a thing. And that's why I did my dissertation on the two-factor theory, the intrinsic and 
factors that motivate police officers, regardless whether you're in an 08 pandemic, oh, I was going to say the 08 crisis, economic collapse, or what have you. I was looking at motivation and motivating factors since then. And I knew, I mean, I'm not saying I predicted all this was going to happen, but I knew something catastrophic like this would take place if nothing changed. So you brought up the question, uh, why is it that we're seeing what we're seeing right now? Well, <laughs> I had this conversation again. Yesterday's employee, shout out to the boomers. I, got, I love my boomers. I learned a lot from my boomers, boomers, okay? Yesterday's employee who comes in to work, works 30 years under terrible conditions with poor supervisors, poor leadership. Hey, you get your pension, you move to you know, Montana, you get yourself a ranch and you, you kick back, relax, you're like, okay, I made it. Yeah, today's employee is not doing that. Today's generation is like, hold on, you want, let me get this straight. You ain't gonna pay me. You're gonna undervalue me. You're not gonna give me opportunities and you're gonna tell me I'm just gonna be happy to be here? <laughs> oh, check this out, player. Go ahead and take this resignation paperwork uh, and let me know how that works out for you. I know people who three years in policing quit outright and they're doing real estate. I just saw a message from somebody yesterday, 10 years on the job, walked away to do something else. Just they're like, oh, no, 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 no. I don't have to deal with this. I mean, they understand, you know, obviously it's, it's a different world today, but today's generation, they know their worth. And when you hear the, I don't want to call them the old timers, but the old generational thinking of, Man, these kids feel so entitled. Who do they think they are? Blah, blah, blah. You're already behind the eight ball because it's no longer your world. It's theirs. So if you're not meeting them where they're at, if you're not being flexible in, you know, in the organization that you're working in, again, I'm not saying it doesn't matter what profession you're in, but understand people don't walk away from jobs. They walk away from leaders. And if you're not good as a leader, if you're not effective as a leader, if you're not demonstrating social and uh, emotional intelligence and all of these things, these interpersonal skills. It doesn't matter what perks you got, people are gonna walk away. You see this in sports all the time. I mean, listen, uh, you see athletes who will say, you know what, I'm not happy because of this contract or because of the, the management and so on and so forth. And you see their numbers dip until they go to another team and then those numbers jump right through the roof again. So, this is no different than what we got going on right here because of the lack of emotional intelligence skills because of the lack of social skills being taught with leaders in just about every profession you're starting to see people say yeah my mental health is worth more to me than anything else i'm willing to take a chance on me doing something for me and my family than going back to an office with a nice view with a corner office with a nice view uh that's not important to me my mental sanity is important to me you working with me being flexible with me is important to me. And if we're not intentionally meeting the people where they're at in that sense, uh, we're, 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 we're going to fall far behind. And let me ask you, here's a nice, I know you know this kind of, what are the qualities of a good leader and what are the qualities of a bad leader? Oh, <laughs> that's like its own webinar right there. So if I were to ask you guys in the audience right now, think if, if you were to close your eyes and I want you to ask yourself this question, the best leaders I've ever worked for, the best people I've ever worked with, what were those qualities? Think about that for a second. You'll probably say something like, man, you know, I had a supervisor who I would walk through walk, walk through hell with because they were empathetic. They valued me. 
they saw me, they worked with me, they gave me challenging tasks because they knew it was going to help me be better. They worked with me to help me be successful and so on and so on. And then when you ask that same question to somebody and you say, oh, I talking about the worst leader you've worked with or worked around, what do they say? Oh, this person was, um, you know, poor tone of voice. They were a-hole. They didn't treat me right. They were undermining, no credibility, two-timing, um, you know, all of in all of those qualities. So they were indifferent. They never talked to me. They never, you know, asked me how I was doing. They never saw me as an individual. All of those tangibles that you see associated with the, um, all of those intangibles you see with people with, that they don't like working with, they all have the same definitions or they're all going to have the same adjectives. So, yeah, if you want to be a good leader, you have to be somebody who wants to be present with the other individual. If you're not about the people, if you don't want to associate with people or talk to, you're not going to be good at it. And so the good news, the good news, the good news, we're all familiar with IQ, you know, people's levels of IQ and so on and so forth. IQ is a threshold competency. So you can't improve your IQ after the age of like 14, 15 years old. Your IQ is what it is. Personality, same thing. Your personality type, if you're somebody who's an introvert, if you're an extrovert, whatever it is, your personality up until about the age of about 20, 21 is your personality for the rest of your life. You cannot increase or decrease it. Now, emotional intelligence. Again, I'm just saying this as an umbrella with everything else underneath, where we're talking about social skills, resiliency, grit, all, you know, all those things. All of that you can improve on, even if you were zeros across the board, you can always improve your EQ, always. So if you're somebody who's struggling, even if you're just an employee and you're struggling with associating with other people or how to, you know, uh, how to improve your relationship management with other people and so on and so forth. You can improve on those things. You can take my course. You can hire me as your coach. All of those things. All of those things are workable. If you think about it, like, I'm not going to make this a political thing. This is not meant to be political. So I, I need to say this out loud first for anybody who's listening and watching. <clears throat> when you think of somebody like Barack Obama, regardless of how you feel about him, whether you like him or don't like him, there is no denying that when that man walks into a room, he commands your attention. Without even opening his mouth, he commands that. And you juxtapose that with other presidents, if they were to walk into the room, eh, probably not so much, right? And what is it, and he's not the only one. I know that, you know, Donald Trump, again, somebody, whether you like him or don't like him, I'm not here to litigate any of those things. But the man walks into a room, everybody gravitates towards him. And what those guys have, Again, I'm not going to call it je ne sais quoi. I'm sure we've all heard that phrase before. But it's that it's that level of personality or being personable. Because, again, emotional intelligence is, you know, the IQ, the personality. It's the combination of all these things. When you walk into a room and you're commanding that much attention, there's something special about you. What I'm saying is there's no reason why you, anybody who's watching this or listening to this right now, can't have that same level of command presence. No excuse. You can work. This is an actual thing you can work on and actually be great at. Even if you have zero social skills. I'm trying to tell y'all, man, I work with some people who you try to get them to say hi to somebody else. They'd be like breaking out in the hives. And they're like, oh, and now for them, it's like, it's nothing for them to walk into a room and have some, 
you know, some class or maybe even crack a couple of jokes and just being comfortable within their own skin. So that's the magic of emotional intelligence. That's the magic so, of this thing. So doctor, let me ask you this question. What is the correlation of success with those people that have high emotional intelligence? Yeah, they understand, they understand people. There's a, it's kind of like, a, you know, when you look at an object, there's some people who just look at it from one angle and that's it. But then the people with, who are very, very successful, they see the whole picture. I'll give you another example. I did a training uh, recently uh, with a group of law enforcement uh, officials. And I'm explaining to them that the successful leader is going to understand that there are generational differences within a workforce and meeting them where they're at because of that dichotomy. There are going to be those who understand that Black people are not one big monolithic group. There are Haitians, there are Jamaicans, there are Black, there are different people, different lineages, different backgrounds, and understanding those things. It's like if you go to a different country, if you know, if I want to go visit, I don't know, uh, China or I don't know, Singapore or something, it's my responsibility to learn the language there. It is not the responsibility of the people there to know English. You know what I'm saying? So when you're in an organization, it is your responsibility as a leader. And the, the successful ones understand this. Those who are very successful understand the individuals who work at the organization. They're not just an employee number 224758. They are Obed Magni. They are Martin Figueroa. They are John Smith who likes to hang out and play golf on the weekends and he, like they know these people at a humanistic level and when they start interacting with them at a humanistic level when you start giving praise and recognition to individuals saying hey you know what i mean when was the last time you and i'm not saying you sir i'm just saying think about it when was the last time anybody in the audience when you listen to this somebody actually wrote a letter or an email a personalized email or a personalized letter you say hey you know what that thing that you did the other day or that project you worked on, you killed it. You did a great job. And because of people like you were successful, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Something like, just something as little as that will motivate an employee so much that they'll even work overtime and not even put in the hours for it. Just because of these little nuggets. And it's more than just recognition. It's achievement. It's a growth. We can get into this. Like I said, I know we only have so much time on well, this podcast. But. Let, let, let me ask you this. We got like, like about eight minutes left. So let me ask you this. I have, always have some rapid fire questions. And, uh, uh, let's here, go. Here, let's here, do it. Here we go. Here we go. Well, what would, what would the older self of you tell the younger self in terms of advice? Stick with it. Don't give up. Stick with it. Don't give up. Yes, you're going to go through some trials and tribulations. But the trials and tribulations make great stories and they make great keynote speeches. What does your future like look like to you? What are your future goals? Oh, my future goals, uh, I'm living by the beach somewhere. I'm flying back and forth between Las Vegas and San Diego because, you know, I love warm weather. So, uh, yeah, yeah. A lot of, a lot of world traveling. I, there's a lot of places I've not been to yet, like Greece. I'd love to visit Greece. But, yes, there's going to be some more traveling. And your leadership goals? My leadership goals I'm always actively working on. It's never a finite thing. Uh, just like the example with the perfect body, there is no end game. It is a constant work in progress to maintain a high level so that you are not susceptible to falling backwards. So I'm actively working on those right now. Um, 
that's it. Uh, guilty pleasures, food wise. Oh man. <laughs> I know you work out. I know you work out. So there's got, you got to get some, what are your weaknesses with food? And there is a, there is a, there is a number one, clear number one, no close number two weakness. Carrot cake. Oh man. You, man, you put carrot cake in front of me, man. I'm bad. You, man, you know, I'm just going to leave it at that. Carrot cake is thy weakness. It's not even the weakness. It is thy weakness. Okay. Bucket list. What's left on it? Oh my goodness! <laughs> that bucket's so deep, I can't even see the bottom of that ocean. Uh, this things I haven't. Uh, I mean, well, I mentioned the traveling thing. Um, just the traveling alone in the different locations. Uh, that bucket list is deep. Um, yeah, that's traveling's a big thing. I'm just gonna leave it at that. I uh, yeah. Okay, uh, and if you can meet. Uh, you get to choose a male and a female leader. Uh, who would like your dream person be to meet, and what would you say to him? Uh, Jesus Christ, and I'd be like, "Look, man, we need to talk. <laughs> There's a lot of things you've done that don't make no sense. I need you to explain it to me because, like, stuff be random, and I I just need you to help a brother out. Just explain it to me. So that would be so he would be the male version. Um. The female, uh, that's a, you know what? I don't know. I'm going to just default and say my mother and she's still around. <laughs> so what would you, I know it just Mother's Day just passed. What, what kind of good things would you tell her? Oh, thank I told you. Her. Thank you for what? Oh, thank you for smacking me upside my head when I was a little youngster, when I didn't know any better. You know, I was over here thinking I was the, you know, the creme de la creme, and she brought me back down to earth very, very quickly. Uh, I know, I, I think I added about a couple hundred gray hairs to her head. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> so she stuck with me, but you know, my success is her success. So, and then, and here, and then I'm going to go ahead and I'll give you this question, and then we're going to do our wrap ups. But, um, what do you want to be remembered for in life when you're no longer here? Making a positive impact on everybody making a positive impact in impoverished neighborhoods making a positive impact for people who've been underserved who've been ignored undervalued um i want to be known for adding value to the space of helping people helping people well i want to tell you thank you so much for being here uh, i we're going to have to have you on again you have like I would great, great insight we've only been to part of your story Yep. And I want to go through the other part as well. I want to thank my producer, um, Brian Garcia, as he's amazing. And if you like the podcast, please give it a thumbs up and good, re uh, good reviews. We appreciate it. Uh, we're going to have great guests on next time. And um, Doctor, would you like, I want you to go ahead and plug where they can get a hold of you, where they can get executive coaching, how they can get in contact with you. I'm just about as easy as they come to finding me. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. And it's at Dr. Obed Magny. So that's at D-R-O-B-E-D-M-A-G-N-Y. Uh, you can go to my website, magnyleadership.com. Uh, you can, you know, I'm offering uh, free courses. And I just have the signature course that's up there right now. And there's going to be a series of courses that you can take, whether you're a leader or whether you're somebody who's on the ground level, you know, the lowest person on the totem pole. It doesn't matter what profession you're in. 
everything that you've been asking for. And I've been, people have been asking me a lot about, hey, how do I improve my social skills on this and that? I'm offering a series of courses. Look out for them, uh, you know, and just reach out to me. You can email me at obed at magnaleadership.com. Uh, perfect, yeah. perfect. Well, thank you so much for being here. I really, really appreciate you, Obed. You're a wonderful person. Thank I you just for giving you. all the good leadership knowledge you have. And uh, we're a lot smarter because of it. And we'll get you on again. Absolutely. And have a good day, everybody. Thanks, thanks for your time. Enjoy the podcast. Thank you. Take care.